tonight we're going to deal with a very big question, which is how do we know that there really is a God? And to put it the way that somebody asked me when I was much younger, they said, what about the pygmies, Mike? What about a pygmy in Africa who has no exposure to the Bible, no exposure to Christianity? How would that person know that there's a God? And we're doing this because it's in Romans 1. It actually teaches about this issue. Um, but we're going to look at Romans 1, then we'll look at evidence for God, and we'll see how to answer the question, apart from the Bible or modern science, what tells us that there's a God? I say apart from modern science, because modern science uh, has actually added to the evidence that there is a creator. Um, and the Bible certainly, obviously, offers its own support for this. But what if you didn't have either of those things? I mean, do all people really know that there's a God? And what sort of guilt could a person have if they'd never heard the gospel, if they'd not been exposed to it specifically. So what does the scripture say about this? And then how does that pan out as we look at real life um, outside of those experiences? So Romans 1 verse 18, that's where we're going to start. And this is a verse by verse Bible study of Romans. <clears throat> we're just kind of plodding through verse by verse, taking the topics and issues as they arise. The question here is not what do I want the Bible to say? The question is, what does it say? <laughs> it's like just letting it, letting it speak. And I find that the Bible is as deep as you will allow it to be um, when, you're, when you're seeking for wisdom and, and knowledge and instruction in it. <clears throat> and Romans is deep, is very deep indeed. So here we are, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, picking up where we left off last week. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now in verse 17 we heard that the righteousness of God was revealed in the gospel. But here in verse 18, we're seeing the wrath of God has already been revealed. It's, it's already happened. God's wrath is revealed. Mankind is like got this sort of revelation that God has wrath, that there's a God and he's upset, that that's kind of a universal fact. Um, because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In fact, this is really important. Those are not just random words that Paul was like, I need more words for this sentence. No, this is like specific words. These are the two things that God's wrath is revealed against. And they're very specific things. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness could also be translated godlessness. And what it really means is a life or attitude that ignores God or doesn't give God the credit and glory he deserves. You're not responding to God. You're ignoring God. <clears throat> this connects to the idea that is carried through the rest of the passage that people know there's a God. That there's something about common sense. There's something about creation that declares God. The second thing is unrighteousness. So we have one, on one side ignoring the existence of God, in, whether it's by rejecting him specifically, I reject that he exists, or if it's just ignoring him, I go through my life and I live like an atheist. I mean, we know plenty of people who who say that they believe there's a God, but they live like there is no God. Functionally, they're atheists. Um, then the second one is unrighteousness, which is wicked behavior. Wicked behavior. So they're emb the embracing of sin and the ignoring of moral truth in my life. That's the, <clears throat> the second thing God's wrath is revealed against. Now, these are the same two things, as we read on in Romans, that all people are supposed to know and respond to. That there's a God and that there's moral truth. Like these two facts, creation and conscience are the things that, according to Romans, we're all supposed to respond to. So he's sort of setting this up. It's almost like chapter, verse 18 is sort of a summary of a new branch of thought in the chapter. 
Um, so people, however, they suppress this truth. That word suppress. Um, I've heard the analogy of, you know, if you're, if you're playing in a pool and someone gives you a, 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 an inflated ball and you try to push it under the water, you're, you're holding it down. Naturally, it would pop out, you're, but you're suppressing it. And there's a sense in which the truth of God is just obvious through creation. It's obvious that there's a God. And to hold back or resist this, it requires you to push against this truth, to suppress it. <clears throat> so, the two truths that are being suppressed are the existence of God, who he is, and it's suppressed, according to the rest of Romans 1, with idolatry or with the elevation of creation, giving creation the credentials that belong to God. And we'll find that happens in modern times as well. Or the other truth they suppress is the moral law, God's moral laws. And they suppress it by sinning and getting calloused and hardened towards those sins and continuing in them and growing in them and them getting worse and worse over time. So more, uh, moral degradation. Romans 1 is an indictment against mankind. That's what we're getting here. We're getting God's wrath is revealed. This is like God saying, mankind, you are in serious trouble. Things are not okay. Things are, I'm okay, you're okay. The biblical statement is more like, I'm not okay, you're not okay. <laughs> and we know this. We know we're not okay. And that's really what Romans 1 is saying. Now, there are, there is a solution to the not okayness of mankind. <laughs> but but it's, it's the fact. It's the fact. So the good news in the gospel, in fact, that's why we call it good news, is because of this wrath having already been revealed. That's why we have such a good news to give. The sentence is out. So that's a bit of a summary. Romans 1 verse 18. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now in verse 19, we get into the details of that. So now he's going to unpack these ideas a little more. It says, because what may be known of God, what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. God has shown them. You, you, the knowledge of God is manifest in people because God has revealed it to people. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Interesting contrast between invisible attributes and clearly seen. It's kind of a poetic phrase there. <clears throat> his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, meaning mankind, are without excuse. I, I like how it starts off here in verse 19 by saying, What may be known of God is manifest in them. There's This means there's things about God that may be known. God is not unknowable. We're not agnostic in the sense of you know, you, nobody knows. No one knows. You can't know. But this is certainly not the biblical perspective. You can know things about God. This is a big, giant claim. It's in creation. Creation allows us to know some things about God, to learn by looking at the world around us some details about the maker of the world. In a sense, you can learn about an artist by the art that they produce. And you can, you can learn about the maker by the things that he has made. This means, when it says God has shown it to them, he's shown us himself. This means that Christianity teaches that men don't just believe in God because they're told to believe in God by other men who believe in God, who were told to believe in God by other men who believed in God, who were told to believe in God. This sort of infinite regression where religion is just something you're indoctrinated in. And that's why the only reason you believe is because somebody told you. And then someone told them, and someone told them, and someone told them, and someone told them, and you can turn it into a big song that never ends. <clears throat> no. Uh, the Bible is actually declaring here that, that 
we are not just indoctrinated by people. We're sort of indoctrinated by the universe. Just life experience tells you there's a God. And this is, this is what started initial belief in God, was just people looking around going, yeah, it's obvious. It's obvious. But it gets even better than this, because it gives us specific details about what you can know about God. Because you don't know everything about God from creation. I mean, I don't know everything about God even, even with the Bible. I'm sure there's things about God I don't know. I'm, that's, I'm fine with that, but I'm more interested in what I do know about God. And that's what I'm accountable for. So what do we know about God? Specifically, the things that he's shown them are listed in verse 20. His invisible attributes, which are described as eternal power and Godhead. His eternal power and Godhead. Now, Godhead is probably a, a poor translation, at least for us in modern English. This is probably not a great translation of the word. It just means divinity. His divinity. So we have his eternal power on one side and his divinity on the other. And these things are revealed by creation. I can know these things about God. That word eternal power um, has to do with ability. Uh, the, the Greek word dunamis, uh, some people go, it's about dynamite. No, it's not. It's <laughs> Dynamite didn't exist <laughs> when this was written. Paul's not like, you know, fire in the hole. That didn't exist back then. Dunamis was a word just meant ability. Like, do you have the dunamis to play the guitar? Yes, I can, I can you know, finger the guitar. I can flat pick the guitar. I, I can do that. Do you have the dunamis to climb a mountain? Nope, don't have that. I don't have the ability to do that. Um, so this is, has to do with God's ability. What God can do is revealed, coincidentally, through what God has done. This seems pretty rational to me. <laughs> like, what can God do? Well, look at, look at everything around you. He can do that. Pretty impressive. So you learn about God's power. He creates time, space, matter, energy, everything that composes the universe around us. Um, and it says his eternal power, which means how long he's been able to do this. Eternal. Eternity. Unending. He's always been able to. How long has God been able to do this? Forever. And this is unlike pagan deities. With pagan deities, you've got like the God of this mountain over here. How old is he? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, well, if he has a dad and a grandpa, well, then he's obviously not, not eternal. Pagan deities don't even, don't even come close to this. When you look at the, the universe and you look to an eternal cause behind the universe, you're looking to the God of the Bible. You're looking to the, the theistic God of, of Christianity. Um, so yeah, that, they don't apply. But through what God can do, we can see who he is. And we'll talk about that tonight. This, the other thing we get is his Godhead, or like I said, that word just means deity, divine nature, divinity. That's what it means. It's talking about that. Now this, in the, in the, in the context Paul's talking about, he's talking to, in that Jewish context of a, of a monotheistic deity. Again, this isn't some polytheistic type thing. It's not a pantheistic type thing. It's an all-powerful, eternal, timeless, transcendent, holy, personal, moral God. And you can learn all of that about God by looking at the world around you without a Bible and without religious indoctrination. And that's what we're going to do tonight. So what I'm going to do right now is we're going to, we're going to just take what scripture says that creation declares God's glory. And we're going to stop. We're going to set, sort of set down the Bible. We're going to look at creation as if you didn't have a Bible. And we're just going to look at creation as if you didn't have modern science or any of that stuff. You're just a farmer. You're just a herdsman. You're just someone living in an agricultural world. You don't know anything about religion or anything about any of that kind of stuff. It's just never, never been part of your life. 
What can you know about God? Um, these questions, these things I'll bring up are going to be more of an overview of several different arguments for God's existence from creation. And you're probably going to have questions. But by the time I'm done with this, you won't remember those questions. <laughs> so I encourage you, write them down, and I will do Q&A at the end of this message where you can ask questions. Don't worry about trying to stump me or anything like that. Go ahead and ask. I'm not worried about that. If I don't know the answer, I have a great way of responding. I say, I don't know. And then... <laughs> And then I let it be. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't have to know everything in the world. Um, but, and later, at some point in time, I like to do a series on evidence for God where I take each argument for God and really unpack it and poke at it from every angle and all that. But uh, not right now. Right now, we just need to do an overview of these things. So here we go. Here's one of the arguments uh, for God from creation, or it's called cosmology. Cosmology. Um, the cosmological argument. And so co cosmos meaning the created worlds around us, everything in, in the cosmos. This is the argument from beginning. And it goes like this. Things that have a beginning have a cause. If something starts, something started it. It didn't start itself. Something else started it. Um, the second statement goes like this. It says the universe has a beginning. And three, the universe has a cause. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And that cause is God. Now, that might seem like, boy, Mike, you're, you're saying a lot. You're concluding a lot from just that little fact that things have a beginning. But let's unpack it just a little bit. I think this is really common sense. It's like the question of why is there something rather than nothing? And the universe had to have had a cause. And it had to have had a cause that was greater than itself and other than itself. I mean, the universe didn't make itself. Did anything make itself? No. No, no, no. Everything had a cause independent of itself. And therefore, there was a first cause, an uncaused cause, something that was the causer of all other stuff. Or else you have an infinite regression of causes and it never stops. And that doesn't make sense. So <clears throat> in dealing with and responding to this argument from beginnings, most people hear it and they go, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, there must be a God. I mean, it's, it's just common sense. It just makes sense that it had to have started. But some people go, well, why can't it just go on forever in the past? Why can't the past just go on forever? And then we get into the problem of infinity. Now, you don't need modern science to do this. We can do this without appealing to any sort of modern science. We can just deal with the problem of infinity in the concept of it itself. Some people think perhaps the universe has just always been. It's infinitely old. And so it was sort of never had a beginning, so it doesn't need a cause. There's a problem with that. Infinity, see if you can follow me on this. This will probably be the hardest thing we do right now for tonight. Infinity is not a number. Infinity, it's a concept, not finite, but it's not an actual number. You can't have infinity apples. Because apples are specific things. There's a, that you'd have a number, no matter how many you had, you have a number. That you, the Infinity doesn't actually exist in the real world. Um, as far as numerically. It's impossible and it's impassable. So let me let me uh, give you some examples. If you had infinity and then you subtracted infinity from it. So infinity minus infinity. How many do you have now? Do you have infinity or do you have zero? I guess, I, I mean, I don't know. I would say maybe you get zero. If I have infinity and I subtract all of the infinity from it, now I've got zero, right? Okay, but think about this. Let's say I've got infinity numbers, infinite numbers, and I take away all the even numbers. 
2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. I take all the even numbers out and I set them over here. Now I have infinity here, don't I? I, t I mean, how many are left after I take out half? I still have infinity. Well, and then how many are over here? Infinity. So I subtracted infinity from infinity. And now I have two infinities. Well, that doesn't really make sense, does it? Well, what if I just take out the first 10 numbers from infinity? Just 1 through 10, I take them out. I take out 10. So how many do I have over here now? And how many do I have here? So infinity minus 10 equals infinity, but it gives you 10. That doesn't make sense, does it? Because infinity is not a number, it's a concept. Is infinity even or odd? An infinity of whole numbers, is it even or odd? If I add 1, does that change? Well, I mean, if you add 1 to infinity, does it plus 1? I throw one more in, a number on, on it? Does that, no, it doesn't make any sense because it's not a number. You're having a hard time conceiving it because your brain keeps telling you that doesn't work. <laughs> Infinity's not a number. If the universe is infinitely old, how many moments have there been before this moment we're having right now? Infinite moments. Now, how do you get to the end of infinite moments? You don't. So if there were infinite moments before now, now represents the end of infinity. And that doesn't make sense. Just the fact that there's a now means that there was a beginning. And I don't need to be a scientist to figure this out. I just need to have the common sense of a farmer. That's all you really need. So we did not pass infinity to get to today. Because you can't, now can you add to infinity, make it bigger? Well, tomorrow there'll be another moment on infinity. So it's bigger now? It doesn't make any sense. So we need a creator, therefore, we need a creator that exists apart from time. And who makes time, who actually starts time. He has to exist outside of moments because he has to, this creator, it, even if it's, even if you think it's not personal, although that doesn't make sense, but, but if this creator doesn't start time, then time won't begin. You, you have to have a timeless, who, who is not stuck on an infinite regression creator, a stopping moment, a beginningless beginner of other things, a first cause, an uncaused cause. All this, these are several different arguments from cosmology or cosmological arguments that all relate to the same issue. The main point is, it's obvious that there's a God because there's a us. This is, this, something had to start this thing. There's a day today. There can't be infinite days going back. Someone had to start this whole thing and had to be capable. Now you might go, okay, well fine. So finally, you have like a universe maker. That's what you've got. A timeless universe maker but why is that god well because god makes sense i mean it makes sense god's capable of making a universe the concept of god he's actually able to make a universe and all we get really is we get sort of pushed into, into the the doctrine of god as you as you ask what that's not the universe could make the universe well the universe is is, is matter energy time space it's all these qualities whatever made us would have to be different than this because if, if the thing that made us had matter, energy, time, and space, well, then it would have had to have a beginning too. So then now you need another beginner, and then another beginner, and another. And that doesn't make any sense because now you have infinity again. So you've got to have a stopping point. So you need a transcendent creator or a supernatural cause. Whoa, Mike, stop. Hold on. You just imported supernatural into this situation here. That's not allowed. Okay, it's not of nature. And it made all of nature. It's supernatural. That's exactly what it means to be supernatural. The, this, this 
cause had to be supernatural beyond nature. I, uh, I saw an interview from an atheist, one of the most famous atheists, probably the most famous, from the 1900s, from the 20th century. You remember last millennium? And his name was Antony Flew. Antony. You know, you know he's a smart guy when his name's Antony. Not, no H, right? Just Antony. Antony Flew was a famous atheist. He had done debates. He'd written lots of books attacking uh, the idea of God and all this stuff. And then he became a theist. He became a believer in God. <clears throat> and the reason was because of micro-machines. He saw the biological machine discoveries and said, wow, there must be a God. Well, later he was interviewed, this world's most infamous atheist, that's what his book says, <laughs> that he wrote after he started believing there was a God. Um, he did this interview with Lee Strobel, and Lee Strobel's asking him questions, going, so you believe that there's a, crea a creator of some kind? And he goes, yes, yes, yeah, I do, I do. I mean, there has to be. And, and then he started asking him questions. He goes, well, do you, what, what can we know about this creator? And then Anthony Flew, as a philosopher, he's sitting there thinking about these things, and he goes, well, he must be incredibly intelligent. And look at what he made. And just starts using common sense. Once you realize there's a cause for all the universe, you, you start to ask what could have caused it. He says, wow, um, is, do you think this is omnipotent? This thing that made all things is omnipotent? And he goes, well, you'd have to ascribe omnipotence if it's going to do anything. What do you mean by that? Well, imagine if the entire universe was just a thumbtack. How much power do you have to have to make a thumbtack out of nothing? Try it. Just an atom. Just one atom out of nothing. Go for it. It, it. You'd have to have power beyond anything we've ever been able to conceive in order to do what was done in, to create the universe. So he was asked, what about eternality? Would this, would this being be eternal? And... Um, and he said, well, yes, it seems like it'd have to be eternal. See, the problem is if you don't have an eternal being, an outside of time being, well, then you have to have a creator for that thing too because it's stuck in time and it must have a beginning. This is uh, applying something called Occam's razor where it's just a ph philosophical idea where you don't multiply causes without necessity. Like there's a banana peel on the ground. How do you think it got there? 300 people put it there. Why would I just, why wouldn't I just think one person put it there? Like, you don't just assume lots of causes if, if one will do. Um, and so you just say, okay, one cause and then it's eternal. He was asked if this cause would be personal, if this, this creator would be personal. And here, here's how he responded. He said, I think he's got to be conscious if he's going to do anything. <laughs> I just love the practical, the practical application of it. Now, if you add intelligence with the ability to have will to just do, choose to do things, you have personhood. So we have a personal, eternal, intelligent, omnipotent creator who's changeless because if he's in eternal, then he has a changeless quality, a timeless, changeless quality to him. Um, he's immaterial because if you're changeless and you're material, you don't do anything. You never do anything. There's an immaterial quality to this thing. Um, also, the question here is then, can he interact with us? Can this creator who made everything interact with us? Well, he made us. This would imply some way of interacting, <laughs> interacting with the creation or else we never would have come to exist in the first place. It's really just common sense. The existence of anything that is universal requires the existence of God. Um, I think it's just plain common sense. And most people would agree, and some atheists would be watching this video later, you know, 
quickly typing about what an idiot I am for saying this, but even atheists will argue and will say out loud that they realize humans are just naturally hardwired to believe in God. That's how they'll put it. And I'll say, or it's common sense. <laughs> um, now, what does modern science say? If you, let's say you weren't just a farmer in the field. You couldn't just look at you know, your, your, your two chickens and be like, well, they're producing eggs and they came from eggs and those came from eggs and those came from eggs. and Something had to start all this. You look at the clouds and the days going around. Something started all this. There had to be a God. Like, it's just common sense. But modern science has supported this with a second law of thermodynamics, which, which states that everything's wearing down or basically the universe is running out of usable energy. It's, it, if you wind back the clock and there's this big explosion, over time, it cools off, it winds down, it just stops, and it's done. And our universe is, is going to die of what they call heat death. It'll just grow cold and, and spread out. That's, of course, if God doesn't intervene, which Scripture says he will. But on a naturalistic view, that's, that's the future. Now, if, it's, if the universe is winding down, something must have wound it up. And really simple stuff here. In the 20th century... The idea that the, the universe uh, had a beginning was being challenged by a lot of scientists and philosophers. They didn't like it because if you say the universe has a beginning, it pushes so hard at the idea that there's a God who made it. So they had all these different things, that oscillating universe theory and, and baby universes theories and all these different theories. But then an astronomer named Hubble found something called the redshift. And that was basically he looked at the universe and he was able to determine that the universe wasn't at zero degrees, actual zero. It was a little above. It's very cold in space, but it's not as cold as it could be. There's residual heat in outer space. And this, along with Einstein's equations, proved that the universe was expanding and cooling off, which means that if you wind the clock back, it was shrinking and getting hotter. This eventually led scientists to basically say there was... A moment when the universe came into being suddenly and explosively. And we're now living after that. There was, the universe had a beginning. It had an actual beginning, a space-time beginning. Not that it was forever a dot and finally exploded. No, even the dot didn't exist at some point. So, um, so they caught up with theology eventually. Now, some people, they argue things like, uh, well, quantum physics proves and string theory proves. And uh, maybe we'll get into all the details of that one of these days. But no, they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. The, and, and it's funny how atheists are being pushed more and more by science to the edges of science. They have to argue from the newest discoveries that they can try to use to promote atheism. Uh, you know, until that becomes chased down and proven wrong, then they got to find something else. So it's, it's the not God of the gaps. Um, now, the Bible puts it this way. The Bible actually predicts this correctly. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Bible teaches that God made it out of absolutely nothing. Unlike other religions and other beliefs, um, like, for instance, in, in even uh, Mormonism, we have, we have uh, the universe existing before God was ever even God. Go figure that. Um, so then we'll come to another argument. Uh, this, is, this is called a teleological argument for God's existence. It's, it's from design. The, uh, the last reason was about the existence of a universe, like even if it was just a thumbtack or a little pebble, like that would require a, a maker of some kind. But this one is about how designed or how the appearance of design is throughout the universe. It, it seems as though it was purposefully organized and structured. Sp specified complexity is one way of putting it. And... I think we can agree that if something is designed, it would require a designer. That would seem to be the case. It seems pretty obvious. 
Like, you know, you might, you might say to the farmer, well, you have a, a, a chicken and an egg. Which one do you think came first, the chicken or the egg? Which one? And the farmer might look at you and be like, you don't farm much, do you? You actually need a chicken and a rooster <laughs> before you get your fertilized egg. You also need a planet, a sun. You need proper temperature. You need water. You need food. You need air. It all seems to be well organized so this stuff called life can keep happening. Even a farmer knows this. In fact, they depend on it. They depend on lightning strikes to put nitrogen back in the soil. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on that keeps life moving forward. Plus, there's clouds and trees. Is, is, it, is it really all just coincidence that water recycles itself and purifies itself and falls back down on your head? Is that really just all a coincidence that, that, that trees exhale oxygen for you to breathe and you exhale carbon dioxide for them to breathe? Total, just total coincidence. We, you know, you have to, you have to go to college to stop believing this. <laughs> there are atheists that have been converted when, when they became parents and they saw the baby that just came out of their spouse or themselves <laughs> and went, oh my goodness, there's a God. I just can't believe this is all just some kind of wacky coincidence. Somebody designed this. This is purposeful. This is, this is on purpose. This is intentful. Now, modern science, though some think it has come and replaced all of this, it's uh, like Richard Dawkins says, biology is the study of, of, uh, of things that appear to be designed. <laughs> I agree with this. Uh, but modern science has actually showed us that there's more design in us than we previously thought. More, not less. There's more. Um, the complexity of life, whether, I mean, we're no longer living times where they thought that maybe the brain is just a heater <laughs> for the body or, or the heart was, it was a heat pump. That's what they thought. Maybe the heart was just pumped heat. Some people thought this, you know, the, 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 uh, the Egyptians, they ripped the brain out and just get rid of it. That, you don't need that in the afterlife. <laughs> Good luck with that. But but no, no, we understand now that, that the, the human body is radically complex. The nervous system, how interdependent all of our various organs and stuff are. The human brain, wildly complex. Wildly complex. We cannot, oh, but we've made a computer that can beat a person at chess. You're like, that's great. Now build a computer that can do the rest of the stuff that we can do. Right? It can also play ball, come up with its own jokes, write a novel. Like, what else? What else can it do? Yeah. Good luck. Um, yeah, we are, we are amazingly, amazingly complex, but also modern scientists showed us the interdependence of life, ecosystems and food chains and all this kind of stuff. I mean, if it wasn't for, um, for, uh, algae, we'd all be dead. Like the interdependence of our ecosystems, all this sort of really specific stuff. Then as you keep going, physicists have gone even farther. And they've showed the incredible precision of the forces that control the universe. The strong and weak nuclear force, uh, gravity, all these different types of fundamental forces that control the universe. And there's actually quite a few of them. They keep discovering more. The number of zeros you have to attach to the end of an argument that explains how unlikely it is that we would have just such a perfect universe. Let's just say it's very unlikely. <laughs> it's not a coincidence. This is actually its DNA and the discovery of tiny biological machines. That's what convinced Antony Flew that atheism was wrong and that there must have been a creator. There must have been a creator. See, because modern science has only added to the teleological argument or the, the statement from design. So the farmer has found some support here in modern science. It's not just a coincidence. 
that uh, food that I eat grows on trees. Although some would say, oh, it is just, you're an idiot for thinking it's, yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. You're also the person who, you know, they went home and, and they put their dirty clothes on the floor and then later they came back and they had clean clothes in their drawer and they just thought that was a coincidence. <laughs> and they never said, thanks, mom. <laughs> now the Bible actually declares this too. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that God designed the universe and structured its laws. The Bible does not preach a universe that is random or that is disordered, but specifically preaches it's the universe we're looking at, that that's what we have. So the, the design argument, you can approach it from lots of different angles. And I think that whether you're a farmer or a physicist or a biologist, you have good reason to believe in God. Then we have another argument, uh, the moral argument. The moral, this is called the, 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 the axiological argument. Axiological, because it has to do with uh, axe murderers. <laughs> No, uh, it doesn't. Axioms. Okay, so the, mor the moral argument, and it goes like this. This is how the moral argument goes. Notice I'm not arguing that because, um, because there's a God, there's moral values. I'm arguing here that because there are moral values, there is a God. There's a, there's a difference. Obviously, if there's a God, you could, he could declare to us that there's morals and there's, he's grounding for that. But this is a little different than that. It goes like this. Moral values and duties are real and you know it. They're real and you know it. And I wouldn't be ashamed to say that to anybody on earth. And if they disagree with me, I'll punch them in the face and see exactly how quickly they suddenly think something I did was morally wrong. <laughs> I would not actually punch anybody in the face because that would be morally wrong, you see? So morals, moral values and duties are real and you know it and I know it and people know this. In fact, we consider it to be like a disorder of the brain if people disregard morality and don't feel bad about it. So it's actually wrong to do certain things, and it's actually right or you ought to do other certain things. Parents should take care of their kids. You should. You ought to. Not just because of biological necessities, because it's morally right. Just, and, and here's how the argument goes. Just as my eye, when I look out and I see you guys, I'm perceiving something that's really there. You're really there. I'm actually, so my perception of you is real. I may not have it perfectly right. Maybe I'm colorblind here or there, but... But I, but I see you and you're really there. And in the same sense, when I perceive moral values, I'm perceiving a value that's really there. It's really wrong to torture babies for fun. That's really wrong. I'm perceiving a genuine value. What Hitler did was really wrong. It was genuinely wrong. It was right to go over there and punch him in the face because of it, right? That was a right thing to do because what he did was wrong. So step one is just saying morals are real, which most people would agree unless they have serious, serious mental problems. I don't mean brain damage. I mean reasoning issues where they're able to justify wickedness. Um, so that's step one. Step two is to say, and God is the source of morality because he's the only justifiable source for moral values and duties. I can't think of another source to ground them in, to say they're objectively true. And by objective morals, we mean morals that are true whether or not anyone believes it. If the Nazis had succeeded in taking over the world and either killing or brainwashing everyone who was left so that they all believed that it was totally okay to murder Jewish people or other races that were considered inferior. Let's suppose that that happened. So the world now believes that that was good. That, yay, go Hitler. That that was wonderful. Does that make it good? No, because it's objectively wrong. 
whether or not anyone believes it. So then where is this objective wrongness coming from if all of humanity agrees that it's okay? It's coming from God. It's the, he's the only justifiable source for morality. Without God, you wouldn't have morals. If there was no God, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be any morals. There wouldn't be anything morally wrong with anything. Or right, for that matter. Well, that was a good thing you did. No, it really wasn't. It was just a thing you did. It, it would just, it's all down to, to, to chemical reactions and uh, societal pressures at that point. So God is the grounding for objective morality. So we have a sense of right and wrong. And that proves that there's a God. And it proves that there's a moral God. Now, the, the skeptic only has a couple ways out of this. They can say, there is no right and wrong. In which case, I think most of us will agree. They're wrong. There really is right and wrong. Like, you're, you're wrong, buddy. You are fighting hard suppressing that truth. So you won't have to say there's a God. Or they'll, they'll play tricks with the term objective, um, where I've seen this. Uh, well, I have objective moral values and duties. Oh, you do? Really? Yes, I have mine and you have yours. That's not objective moral values and duties. And you'll get into word games and philosophical things and all this kind of stuff. But, and uh, that, it's good to approach those things. Uh, now, modern science doesn't have a lot to add to the issue of morality because there's no scientific tests for morals because they're not uh, like laws of nature. It, their moral laws are different than laws of nature. You can't, you're like, every time I drop a ball, like, it feels bad. It's like, it doesn't, that doesn't work. Um, but, but what we can say is that modern science only donates this information, is that now we, we, we can collate data, we can look around and go, yep, it's universal. Humankind pretty much all agree there's moral values and duties. Some of them are different. You know, I, I'm not going to eat that cow, you know, but, but you are going to eat that cow. I think eating cows are wrong. I think they're right. Well, why won't you eat that cow? Because it might be grandma, because I believe in reincarnation. Oh, so what, what you're really saying is you don't believe in eating grandma, and we agree on that. I just think you're wrong about reincarnation, which is why I'm going to eat that cow. So primarily, for the most part, we have pretty much the same. It's kind of like compasses. You know, you might have a compass that, that doesn't quite point true north. You know, or magnetic north versus true north are slightly different. And so we have moral compass, and it might be a little bit off, but we have a general moral values that we share as humans. And that's exactly what we should expect from Scripture. Romans 1 will go on to talk about this later on in chapter 2. It will say, this is what the Bible says about this, that, that yes, of course, you have a law written on your hearts. You don't need to read the Bible to find out what morality is. You might need it to correct your morality a little bit, <laughs> but you don't need to discover morality through reading Scripture. Um, it, it'll already be there. So now what, what, can I, uh, what can I conclude from these, these arguments that I've offered you guys? Here's my conclusion. A monotheistic moral God exists. He's transcendent. He's timeless. He's powerful. He's intelligent. He's personal. And he's good. He's morally good. I mean, he's got to have a personal, he's got to be a personal agent if he's morally good. Trees aren't morally good. Chairs aren't morally good. They might be useful in that sense good, but not morally. And so you have a personal a holy, eternal, powerful creator God of the universe, and I haven't looked, I haven't opened the Bible to find it. This is really powerful. Now, some people say, well, yeah, okay, finally, but that's fine, Mike. You've just got general theism. You don't have the God of the Bible. And I completely disagree. That is the God of the Bible. This is how the Bible describes God. Now, if if the the God I observed through creation was very different than the God of the Bible, then we'd have a problem. 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting, as I observe creation, I'm not getting, uh, the, you know, Buddha isn't coming up, who some people treat Buddha like he's some kind of God. Zeus doesn't come up. Like, I don't look at creation and go, there's got to be someone in that cloud, you know, who's got a big hammer. Like, as a farmer in a field, you would never come up with polytheistic pagan gods unless it came from your imagination. You would look at creation and come up with one true almighty God. And that's the philosophy that's in Romans. And that's what we see in the world around us. And I love this because one of the things I love about scripture is the philosophy that's in the Bible is so true. I, I heard that this is also something Antony Flew said, right? As he just came out of uh, atheism and he said, he goes, in Christianity, and he did not become a Christian. Uh, because I think he had years of hardening his heart towards Christians and Christianity. Unfortunately, it didn't, didn't go away. But when he became a, a, a deist, is what he ended up being, I think, he says, um, in Christianity, you have a first-rate philosophy. First-rate philosophy. And I love that. I just love that. I mean, look at the philosophy of other books. If you're into philosophy, you can check that stuff out. It just means the way you think about things. I mean, it talks about the, the problems of human nature, the struggles of life, the, what we see at creation. The, it's, it's great. And it's not new to the New Testament. It's not just in Paul. Let me read to you Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. This was written, I don't know, about 3,000 years ago. And here's what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Psalm 19 here declaring to us, that creation makes it clear that there's a God and it makes it clear in every language to every human on planet Earth. That is pretty powerful stuff. Now, this is interesting because in, 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 the, in the, the apologetics that we read in the scriptures, Acts chapter 17, this is how Paul argues. He argues the common sense stuff and he actually steps into, in Athens, into the, the, the Areopagus, just this gathering of people coming together discussing religious issues and they liked wisdom, you know. And listen to how he approaches them with a common sense kind of, there's a God and you know it. And he's in the middle of a bunch of idol worshipers. So let me read it to you in Acts 17, 22 through verse 31. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, these idols, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it. Not paganism. Right there. Not paganism. Not, not Japanese ancestor religions where you believe that two gods got in a fight and one of them got its guts poured open and the blood spilled out in the ocean. That created the Japanese islands. Like this is not... This is, no, we believe in a God who created purposefully, deliberately all things. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Right? Because he's immaterial. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So he's in control. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. 
for in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He's quoting one of their poets. Therefore, since we are the offspring, notice not the children, the offspring. We become the children when we become adopted, but we are his creations. We're the offspring of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Let's be honest, that's really stupid. I remember one time we went and visited a, a Buddhist columbarium and we went there and they have these statues, of pictures of uh, sculptures of Buddha all over the place. And I walked up to one of them and I was like, I knocked on its belly. I wasn't being rude. Nobody was around. And I was just, I was just curious. I wondered what it was made of. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, this Buddha is made of plastic. It's like a <laughs> like quarter inch thick plastic. And I thought the insanity of idolatry, it doesn't make any sense, man. You're, you're literally standing before like something that was probably made in a Barbie factory. Um, anyway, truly, and he's talking to them, honestly, just common sense. He goes, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And he, and he, he argues from what's obvious about God, the foolishness of idolatry, and then just starts talking about Jesus because the wrath is revealed and now salvation is revealed in Christ. I love this. He comes to people who believe in idols and he appeals to common sense. When you are witnessing, I encourage you to do this. You do not need a degree in philosophy to show that God exists. You're like, we're here. God exists. Now, there are people who will be stubborn and who will be hard-hearted and hard-willed and they'll resist you on all these issues and you can reason with them and be gracious and patient with them. But in the end, they're just suppressing the truth. Now, The next phase, as he continues, we'll just get a little bit further here. Um, it's not about what man knows. That's what we already talked about. But it's about how man responds to this revelation of God that we see in creation. And then what happens to mankind as a result of our response. Because we don't respond very well to this. Because let's face it, we have though we know there's a God, we have a motive to reject him. Because he, he wants me to do things I don't want to do. And doesn't want me to do things I do want to do. So verse 21, Romans 1, 21, it says, Because although they knew God... Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the problem is they don't glorify God. This is ungodliness we talked about in verse 18. They're ungodly. They don't glorify God, nor are they thankful. They're ungrateful. They're unresponsive to the kindness which God has given them. Like, have you ever thanked God for your lungs? Or did you just get mad when they weren't working? Did you ever thank God for your life? Or did you just get mad when it went downhill? The unthankfulness creates a bitterness in the creature that shakes our fist at the creator, the one who's given us all good things. I've met a lot of angry atheists. I've met a lot of angry theists. People are like, well, I was mad at God. And I'm just like, there's nothing wise about being mad at God. I'm scared for you. If you're mad at God, you're seriously deluded. The creation shaking its fist at the creator? Really? You think you'll be proud of this attitude later on when you stand before him in heaven? In all his glory? In all his wisdom and power? And you're like, you should have made life better for me. <laughs> it's like, what are... But I've met a lot of people who were angry. And I've even heard atheists say this when, when challenged. If there really is a God and you stand before him in heaven, what will you say on judgment day? What will you say? And uh, like Richard Dawkins has his response to this. He's a well-known atheist. And he says... I will say, sir, why did you make yourself so hard to find? 
you're a fool. Like, really? Okay, but you're surrounded by a world where most people believe there is a God. Meaning he doesn't seem that hard to find. And then you're standing before the real God, who's obviously real. And you're about to be judged. And you're blaming him? You were so smart that you, you got it wrong? Is that what you're saying? I was so clever, I got it wrong, even though most, almost everybody got it right. I've heard atheists say, yeah, we're freaks of nature. It's free, we're, I've, out of their mouths, that's, uh, they've said it that way. We're, I'm a freak of nature because I'm an atheist. But really, it's, you know, it's natural to believe in God. But we're, we're kind of freaks of nature. It's probably secretly thinking, uh, really, I'm just kind of smarter than everybody else. <laughs> Good luck with that. Those are called futile thoughts. This is why you can't even conceive of, or I wouldn't worship that God. I'd rather go to hell. Okay. That wish will be granted. But talk about futile thoughts. Talk about a foolish thought. I'm going to find out that there really was the loving God the Bible talks about, but I refuse to let him be loving. I, I refuse to accept that he's loving. In fact, I know atheists who, they won't even look at the nobility of Christ's sacrifice. They look at it like a bad thing. They mock the cross. They mock the idea of Jesus dying in my place. They mock the idea of God loving people and all this. And it's like, you're, you're, you're so darkened that you can't allow one positive thing to happen. I mean, have you ever felt that way? You're so mad at somebody that if they do anything nice, you hate it still? Hey, I like your haircut. Shut up, you! I mean, this is, that's, that's what they're doing to God. But there's, there's atheists, pagans, false religions, this type of thing, and those things really do exist. And some people go, well, Mike, are you saying that there's no such thing as atheists? Because I know many believers, who I, or my brothers and sisters who I love, who believe there are no actual atheists. Like someone says, I don't believe in God. They really do. They're just denying it. I, I don't agree with that, but let me be clear. I think what Romans is teaching us isn't there are no atheists. I think Romans is teaching us there shouldn't be any atheists. It's not reasonable. It's irrational. But if you do reject God, your heart can become darkened and your thoughts can become futile. So when an atheist says, I don't believe in God, that's a futile thought. That's a foolish heart. And you tell him, no, you don't have a foolish heart and a futile thought. I think you're actually going against what Romans 1 says. There are really atheists. They're just dark, they're darkened hearts and futile thoughts that have brought them to that point. Let me give you an example. Here we have Anthony Flew. Now, he suddenly started believing there was a God because of micro machines, biology, all that stuff. Doesn't that mean he was wrong all that time when he argued with all of his philosophical weight that Christianity, theism in general, was just ridiculous, preposterous, impossible, and wrong? And then all of a sudden, he's like, oh, I was completely wrong that whole time. He really had an opinion, and he, and he really shifted that opinion, but that's because he had a, that, that futile mind. They ought to believe. That's the, that's the statement of Romans. They should believe, but when they reject God, either disobeying him, not being thankful to him, or inventing other versions of God, they do become futile. There are people who really, really believe false religions and false things, um, but... It's a result of that darkening. Uh, verse 22, it says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. There's an exchange. They did. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Now they believe the lie. So there are really atheists in that sense. There just shouldn't be. There's just no excuse for it because they're denying the evidence. 
um, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So they professed to be wise. They became fools. Um, in replacing gods, whether it's pagans, and pagans, if you read ancient pagan writings, they thought they were really smart. These guys thought they were really, really wise in their pagan beliefs. Everybody thinks they're wise. Let's, and, and we're no exception. I think it's wise to follow Christ. It is. But, but it seems as though even those who are wrong think they're wise. <laughs> so, of course, thinking you're wise doesn't make you wrong, but it also doesn't make you right. <laughs> it's just something people think. Uh, but all the while, they're patting themselves on the back because they think, oh, we're forward, ed- we're forward thinking, we're educated, we're wise. There was a movement a little while ago in England to try to, to, try to uh, repackage atheism by calling themselves, not atheists, but calling themselves bright. We're brights. I'm a bright. Are you bright? And they tried to get it off the ground, and it, it didn't seem to launch off the ground, and I thought, that's so perfect. Like, we're a- athe- like what if Christians went around saying, we're not just the light of the world, we're bright. And the British thinking, this means we're smart. You're bright, you're smart, you're intelligent. Are you an atheist? I'm just intelligent. If you were intelligent, you'd be me too. <laughs> okay, that's fun. Um, but yeah, so ancient pagans, they thought they were wise. And it's interesting how like Aristotle would have arguments that seem to support the God of the Bible, monotheism. But then he wouldn't realize this, this same argument you're using to support gods only supports God. And it refutes your own your own stuff about gods. It's interesting how this stuff would work. Modern atheism is, is the same way as ancient paganism or any false religion. They're really all in the same camp of we're rejecting God. We're just, we're rejecting God and we're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Idolatry is evidence for this. Um, I make a little statue and I bow down to it. If that's not evidence that something's wrong, spiritually, I don't know what is. False religions, they fail. Science um, is, is fantastic until it becomes scientism. Where I say, I will not only study science, but I will only allow naturalistic explanations for everything I study. So when I get to the beginning of the universe, I go, gee, I don't know how it happened. Because I can't think of a naturalistic way for it to happen. (laughs) And they're sort of stuck with a permanent question mark on certain issues because they're not allowed to say God did it. Even if God did do it. It's the uh, science of the gaps theory. (laughs) That's what it is. Um, So no matter how amazing creation is... Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter, uh, to them, to some, to some, it does. Uh, a lot of scientists get saved because of their science research and stuff. It depends. I'll give you, let me give you a couple quick examples and we're going to shut it down for tonight. I'll do Q and a, um, one of the examples of this is, uh, Lawrence Krauss is a physicist, uh, who's well known and, and well respected by some. And, um, at least as a, as a, the work he does, but maybe not what he does when he's not doing his work. <laughs> But Lawrence Krauss says that he thinks the universe came from nothing, and nothing is something in quantum physics called a quantum vacuum. Anybody here, you've heard of a quantum vacuum? The, I, okay, see, here's the funny thing. A quantum vacuum, does that sound like nothing? Yeah. No, it's got qualities, doesn't it? And it does. Quantum vacuum has, has potential energies, and it has an all, like a whole sea of things going on. It has space. It has dimensionality. That's not nothing. So his real battle is to say, I think that some, the universe came from something which I'll call nothing so that I don't have to explain how that something got there because it would also require God. Because even in, in quantum states, time passes and you get, you get, again, you can't have get past infinity. Now, philosophers have challenged Lawrence Krauss on this saying, that's not nothing and you can't have actual infinities in life. And his response is, philosophers are stupid. I'm not kidding or exaggerating. 
Um, I saw a panel discussion on, the, on on what the meaning of nothing was, and there was a and he was on it, and some other scientists were. It was like the Isaac Asimov memorial debate thing they do or discussion they do every year. It's the 14th annual one. You can look it up if you want to watch two hours of people debating on what nothing is. And uh, and the philosopher that was on there just stood there with his arms folded most of the time, and he goes, "This thing's a waste of time. Nothing means not anything." And Lawrence is like, "Well, it's more complicated than that." And he's like, "Oh my gosh, the philosophers!" And he's like, "Well, you're a philosopher. You wouldn't understand." Because he thinks they're stupid. Um, this is what happens, right? Uh, Richard Dawkins, his greatest, here's another atheist, his greatest attack on God, his central argument in his book, um, which is uh, The God Delusion, central argument against God is, oh yeah, then who made God? And we're like, um, we don't believe in a pagan God that was created. We believe in an eternal unmade God. So no one made God. Is that really your whole argument? Wow. And they don't see how darkened their heart is on this stuff. Uh, Stephen Hawking, another brilliant scientist, uh, physicist, he's written lots of material and, and he's tried to figure out how the universe could come about without God. And, and, it didn't, and then later said, no, I was wrong. How about this idea? No, I was wrong. How about this idea? That kind of summarizes his recent career. But, but this guy, he, he starts off his book by saying philosophy is dead. Now, the irony of this is that's a philosophical statement. And therefore, it's self-refuting. Philosophy can't be dead because you can't get away from using philosophy in life. We, we're going to use it whether you like it or not. So this is God giving them up. Um, the bottom line is, to kind of wrap it all up, wrap it all up, um, if you were a, just a pygmy or, or, or some, someone working on a farm or a herdsman or something like that out in the middle of nowhere, you'd have plenty of reason to believe in two major things. And Romans is going to build on this as we keep going through the book. There's a real God. He fits the description of the, in the Bible. Actually, a whole lot of it. And there's real morality. But then there's a problem. I haven't always done what's moral. And now I know I'm in trouble before God. And that's how the wrath of God is revealed. I know I'm a sinner. I know this without any help from anyone else. I know I've done wrong. And I know there's a God. And so that's the beginning of things. That's what he knows. Now, what Paul seems to imply is that if we grope for him and seek for him, then we find him. Uh, Old Testament apply, applies this as well. That if I was out there and I started praying, God, I know there's a God out there. Please reveal yourself to me. Please make yourself known to me. That I can anticipate God would actually make himself known. And Abraham and other men in the Old Testament stand as examples of God doing that very thing. God calling someone out for himself. And so I think he does this uh, plenty of times. There's a book called Eternity in Their Hearts, which actually talks about that kind of and stories of that sort of thing happening. So hopefully that answers that question. What we're going to get into next week is the, re the rest of Romans 1 here talking about... Um, the moral degradation of society, and it super applies today. Um, we'll talk about homosexuality and those issues right as they apply here in, this, in the text. Um, so, but uh, let's pray, and then if you guys have questions, I'll take them. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the philosophy of the scriptures. Um, just this really brief, casual overview of some of the reasons to believe in God, just some of them. Um, we see that it's common sense. We just pray that we could help stir up other people's common sense, Lord. That you are real. And we know it. Father, we pray that you set us out as lights in the world. Not as brights in the world, but as lights in the world. <laughs> we, are, we are fools who have found the wisdom of Christ. And we pray we could share that with others in Jesus' name. Amen.
So that's probably the most common response to the moral argument for God's existence is to say um, we're only moral because of societal evolution. Now, for one thing, I'm, I'm skeptical that we're only moral because of societal evolution. That's just a claim without any evidence. I mean, you, you can't look at bones and see morality slowly evolving over time. It's just, it's as though the word evolution can be used to explain anything, anything I want. Yes, well, we slowly evolve to a place in society where you can say evolution and it means anything you want it to mean. <laughs> it just, it's just such a wishy-washy term. But this is actually, um, there's an official philosophical title for what they've just did. That It's a fallacy. It's called the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy, it's like your genes are, that's, that's how you got to be the way you are. Um, it goes like this. Uh, let's say you believe in uh, the moon. You believe there's a real moon and that it reflects the light of the sun. It doesn't produce its own light. And I say, yeah, but you only believe that because somebody else told you to believe it. You didn't make your own scientific observations. You just believe it because your parents told you. That's how you started believing it. And you go, well, that's true. But that doesn't mean that the moon doesn't reflect the light of the sun. You see, that's the genetic fallacy. It's saying because of where you got your beliefs, they're wrong. Where I get my beliefs of morality has nothing to do with whether morals are true or not. So if society slowly discovered morality, does that mean morals are fake? No, and, that, and that, that's kind of what your person's arguing for, right? They're saying, well, if you just, if society just slowly foisted morals upon us because it was required for, for humans to live and co uh, work together and cooperate, you had to have morals or what seems to be morals. Then are they saying morals aren't true? They're fabricated? Okay, well, you're delusional. You're delusional. So we believe that we're discovering morality, not creating morality. Because then... Let's say that we, we had that Hitler situation. Well, so what's wrong with the, the, the converted world to Nazism? What's wrong with that versus our world now? Nothing's wrong because that's just society changed. So it, you, so it doesn't get away from the issue of, of objective moral values and duties. Do they or do they not exist? And if the person says they don't, they're a monster. And if they uh, admit they do, they have to embrace God or become irrational in some other way. While I was dead, you sought me out and gave your life to me. There is no greater love than this to do what you did for me.